0: Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: Well, we've reached another Friday edition of EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, is in the house. If you've got a question, theology related, or anything about any of the teachings of the church, Colin is your man. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288 3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1205 271 2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1205 271 2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Dubensky and Jeff Burson, magnificent person handling our social media efforts. So if you are watching on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, also known, I've come to learn, as an an urban adventurer.
2: An urban me, an urban adventurer? An
1: urban adventurer, because you and Kieran, the oh. men of the Donovan <laughs> family, are staying in the city and obj- enjoying all of your creature comforts over the course of the that's weekend. True. That's and true. And your wife, Andrea, and your daughter, Siobhan, are heading out into the wilderness uh, t- to, to, to lay camp. on the
2: ground and sleep in a tent and hopefully not get rained on. Yes.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, I, don't, I don't understand. <laughs>
2: Well, it's just, it's you know, to,
1: this, this, this <laughs> should be reversed.
2: Well, maybe we can lead up to a whole yeah. family uh, uh, camp out, okay. well, that would you be know, I sure sure did a lot of this as a kid, you know, well, every year we well, trekked sure in the off to you Minnesota, to of that too. not in the Navy, really? everything was made of metal. So we didn't have to have, we didn't have tents and, you know, that kind of thing. Bivouacking you do have to go and,
1: ashore occasionally, don't
2: you? Well, we do, you know. Yeah. All
1: right. All right. If you've got a question for Colin about camping or anything else, call us at 833 288 EWTN. Peyton writes in Can you explain the co redemptrix role of Mary?
2: Well, funny she should ask as we uh, plow our way through a collection of Marian feast days. Um, we've, we've had a bunch of them in the last week. We had Our Lady of Victory, also known as Our Lady of the Rosary. Uh, last week on the 7th of October, uh, we on Saturday, um, and we had in Spain Our Lady of Pilar yesterday or the day before Thursday, no, yesterday, and in Brazil, Our Lady of Aparecida. And today is one of the Fatima anniversaries, so Mary is getting her, her due attention uh, in this week, and so uh, we've had that coverage uh, this. This uh, end of the week, and as I I noted before the show, I'm I'm bilocating between here and radio, and the TV re-air of our coverage from this morning so Janet
1: did that for years yeah women of grace tv and radio were on at the same time i never understood that but well i can rectify for
2: for for her it was normal for me (laughs) it happens like every six years (laughs) you know so it's a it's a little bit different it's a bit of a a bit of a thing so um yeah co-redemptrix uh there is no real doubt in the in the in the tradition regarding this intimate role between our lord and our lady that in terms of those human instruments uh that were involved in the in the salvation of the world and continue to be we are instruments here uh speaking about uh christ and the gospel over radio and tv the church uh all of the baptized can can do that But her role is unique because from her came the human nature of Christ. And on the basis of that motherhood, that intimate relationship, the church sees in her, as the fathers of the church did in the early centuries, a new Eve. In other words, the human race was essentially refounded in the new Adam, Christ, St. Paul uh, calls him that, and the new Eve, whom the fathers discerned from this, from the from uh, the testament the old testament and also from her role in and what is in scripture that Mary fulfilled that w- role so a new founding of of the human race a redemptive family so that she is the mother of all the redeemed as Eve was the mother of all the living by by the law by nature and so how to you what kind of language can explain the utter completeness of this. Now, in, in it's, it's something of a spousal relationship. Uh, if you look in the Old Testament, in the Song of Songs, for example, you have this account of the bridegroom and the bride. And so, this is language we certainly use of Christ and we use of, use of the church. But just as there was a natural marriage between Adam and Eve in the founding of human nature, There is a supernatural marriage, a marriage of charity and of grace and of a common will and a common mind between Our Lady and Her Son, the Redeemer. And how to express the tightness of that bond and the co-influence there. And we see that in the marriage feast at Cana, this influence which she had, expressing a need which he then fulfilled, although it was not timely. In the plan of god of which she could not have known the uh, the, the details of that so how to express that intimate bomb co-redemptrix has been has been used on a number of times by popes john paul ii and other popes have used it i think the total is six times is used in by theologians over 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 decades i didn't realize it was that many it, it is yeah. and th- the question is to how to use that word without suggesting a equality there in that role no human role with respect to christ is going to be equal but at the same time but it
1: shouldn't be such a foreign concept to us it, it the is co-pilot a co-pilot is not equal with the captain you know what i mean it's exactly we should understand this
2: yeah so i think the language is has been the problem for the church in the 90s this was discussed at length there was some thought that John Paul II would uh, would proclaim this uh, doc- dogma. Uh, I would say it probably is close to being a common teaching in terms of the, you know, the the background and the understanding of this relationship. But how to express it? We know obviously that mi- that our non our non-Catholic brethren, the Protestants, would be uh, loath to think of Mary. They hardly. Uh, give her much attention in theology at all in that. So, those kinds of difficulties need to be overcome. And the church, throughout her history, has done this in the theological battles that took place in the early church, in the conclusions reached by councils, in the declaration of teachings, dogmas. And uh, I believe that something will be done to officially put this into some language that will be at least acceptable within the church, and that isn't an immediate catalyst for rejection by some in the church and and those outside of it. So that's the relationship that's trying to be described by that term, and uh, it's perhaps a little bit too difficult, at least in our current context, to to get an agreement on that, but uh, someday I believe it will happen, whether with that term or another.
1: 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Wide open phone lines rather, for you on this Friday. Um, I'll give you this question, Colin, we may have to to carry over here and Hmm. and finish the answer in a moment. But I've had, you know, with the you know, with the just uh, unmerited opportunities that are afforded me. I have, you know, occasion both uh, formally and informally to run across a lot of theological content. Um, but I've never, I don't think I've ever heard, as as straightforward as this question is, I don't think I've ever heard anybody mm-hmm. speak to it before. James says, does God bestow equal amounts of grace on all human beings?
2: Um. The short answer to that is no. Potentially, you would say God would bestow all the grace that we are open to receiving. The most open person was the Blessed Mother, who we were talking about, and therefore she was full of grace. Uh, In other words, the perfection of grace, as the Greek uh, describes it. That's going to be there true in all others, subject to concupiscence, subject to all the temptations of the devil in the world. Uh, according to the degree that they accept, and that's the degree of charity in which they live their life, their union of will with God, and their love of neighbor. Uh, and so the answer to that is it's not in equal amounts at all. The Charity is according to our receptivity uh, and our willingness to surrender ourselves to God.
1: It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan.
0: Send us an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: You know, here at EWTN, we offer the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel live every morning at 8 eastern time right after the sunrise morning show here on ewtn radio don't miss out we can even send you a link right to your email inbox every day just visit ewtn.com and click on subscribe still have wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-ewtn that's 833 288-3986. Ed, in the great state of Iowa, listening on iHeartRadio, was unable to hold through the break, Colin, but he wants to know, did Jesus empty himself of all omniscience and know only what was revealed to his human side, or did he actually really know the date and the hour?
2: Yeah, this this expression in Scripture that only the angels and not even uh, the Son of Man or the Son knows— uh, is something that, that the fathers of the church and theologians have pondered over. Uh, there is a thing in moral theology called mental reservation, and that is not air, people are not always into, you know, if somebody asks you some question that's very personal, they may do it humbly, simply, in thinking. Uh, or a priest uh, called to the court to ask, well, had, did somebody confess? The priest can say, I know nothing about that we can say, oh, I, I don't I don't really know the answer to that, or I know nothing about that. In other words, they're not entitled to that information, so the knowledge is reserved. And so it's called a broad mental reservation because it's not the opposite of the truth, which is a lie, but it's the reserving of the truth because of the lack of entitlement on the part of the person asking. So... That's the way, basically, it's been understood that, yes, Jesus is God. There's only one person in Jesus. That person is the second person of the Trinity. He knows all of history. He knows anything that human knowledge can ever acquire. Uh, He knows the past, present and the future. But doesn't mean that as his human brain developed and his mission carried forward that that was his intellect was illumined in a human way this is what happens to us our intellect takes in knowledge by sense knowledge and we we place it in there in our memories and so on we can use it again we draw generalizations from it we may draw conclusions in the mystical life light truth knowledge can be infused into the soul uh, by by the angels according to the most common explanation of that theology them giving on the light which they then receive have received from higher up and so Christ according to the needs of his mission in his human nature would have re- known everything he certainly had all the divine power he ex- he specifically manifested that in order to demonstrate who he was
1: yeah I mean Having a human nature does not bypass your divine nature.
2: <laughs> no, it didn't. So the walking on the water, the miracles, the ver- all the miracles that he did. And the, his human nature did it, even in this applies to the sacrament of reconciliation, when the paralytic was healed and they dis- they scoffed at him because he said, your sins are forgiven before he healed it. He said that you may know that the son of man, a Hebraicism for that man, that a human being, can forgive sins. I say, take up your pallet, your, your your mat, and and go home. So he instrumentalized human nature for his divine power, for the forgiveness of sin as he does the church, as he does water in baptism, and oil in confirmation, and bread and wine in the Eucharist, and oil for anointing and the laying on of hands, and so on. The instrumentalization of creation was part of the mystery of the Incarnation, and he did that. But he used his power at his own will. And so when they tried to arrest him at, in a couple places or to pu- push him off the mountain where Nazareth was and stone him, he walked through their midst. It wasn't his time because by divine power and his exercise of that providence, he did that he did what he willed to do. And so, none of that was laid aside. But he used what was necessary, he did what was necessary for his mission and no more. It wasn't a grand display of divine might. It wasn't, you know, miracles just for the sake of doing something spectacular at all. Uh, But a very careful choice and a very careful use of that divine power simply to witness to and demonstrate the truth of who he said he was.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. We head next to the Republic of Texas. Tammy is a first-time caller in Menlothian, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Tammy, you're on with Colin Donovan.
2: Hi there. Hello, Tammy. What's your question today?
3: Okay. Recently, I heard um, in the news that the Pope, Pope Francis, is considering blessing same-sex unions. Is that true?
2: No, it is not. And from the horse's mouth, he said that when that story was floating around. So... there's a distinction between a charitable response to people who are struggling with a deep-seated problem and how to encourage them. uh, The term is not used lightly because of the organization Courage, which works with people with same-sex attraction to lead them to to be chaste and to live the Christian life faithfully. There's There's some area in there is how to do that in cases. And we look at our culture, which in many ways parallels something which Christ said. They know not their left hand from their right hand. This is our day. This is our day as it was his. Many people, even though they were baptized and are Catholics, they know not their left hand from their right hand. But their desire not to be evil people, at least, is the basis of trying to guide them to the truth and to lead them progressively to the truth. So I, I think the question of the of blessing same-sex unions or marriages is out of bounds because, as he himself explained, there is only one kind of union, uh, which is a marriage, and that's the one with the male and female distinction. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't people with the friendship of, uh, it must be chaste as chaste mar- friendships between married men and and mar- other married women other than their wife or single women they work with these these things must be chaste but how how do to, to both on the one hand not condemn a person who's struggling with something and on the other hand lead them to a, to a greater fidelity to the gospel i think that's is his ultimate goal now whether you know What you hear coming out of the Synod, which isn't supposed to be coming out, but is coming out anyway, things being said in there, and, and some of it is frank stupidities, but there are people standing up for the truth as well in there, uh, is a clash of ideas and a clash of perspectives on this very point, presumably with the goal that out of it the Church will come to a deeper understanding at least of you know, the interior battle, if you will, in the Church. And what is necessary to to lead people to the truth, without blessing things which are sinful, and I think that's the great challenge, and that it is a challenge, and that it's uncomfortable that this is taking place. Absolutely, uh, but we'll see what comes out of it. And so I don't, uh, I don't think we should, uh, you know, pre- prejudge what will be come out of it in a year or longer since this is the first stage of two after which whatever decisions are made that come out of it uh, will be made by the only person really who can make it, and that is the Pope. So I think it's really premature to see anything as set in stone, and certainly what is not is what the Pope has said, that no, there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. Uh, Same-sex union would be in the, the same vein because that's an illicit relationship morally. Uh, but there are people who are confounded over this and they don't know how to get out of it or they think they're on the right side of history. Uh, how, to, how to save their souls? Because, you know, the church, is, as Jesus said, is not for the righteous, it's for the sinner. Uh, so, how to lead the sinner, of which we are all in that group in some area, how to lead the sinner to the truth. Uh, without losing them, but also without affirming things which are evil. And that is a tremendous pastoral challenge, and I'm glad I'm not the one who makes those decisions or even has to comment on them in the Synod.
1: 833-288-EWTN, that is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Lucia, if you are still listening, please call us back. Uh, Our call streamer extraordinaire, Mr. Matt Kubenski, is in need of his end-of-the-week nap and uh, misinterpreted some information. So we would love to hear from you, Lucia. If you're still listening, give us a call back, and we would love to get to your question. Um, Next up is Anne. She's a first-time caller in New Orleans, Louisiana, listening on Catholic Community Radio. Anne, you are on with Colin Donovan.
0: I've been having this thought for a while. Okay. When a person gets in purgatory, does he or she stay in purgatory according to the sins they committed or the number of sins they committed? And if a if a person is praying for them, once they the repentance is there, they go on to heaven. And everybody, uh, other people. Heard
2: before, or does everybody go up at the same time at the end of the world? Okay. Um, well, no, there's, there are people in heaven right now. The angels are there, and the, the purpose of canonization is to say these people who are the Church affirms are with God and therefore are can be models of imitation of Christ. Uh, so the saints and the angels are there, and many, many, many saints used in the general sense who are not canonized by the church and maybe nobody knew who they were. They were just a person very faithful to God and and remained close to him until the moment of their death and they went to be with him. Uh, so we don't need to be canonized to be saints. Uh, the Holy Ones of Corinth, uh, I don't know if uh, Jack, if Paul was using that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because Corinth was not exactly a hot... <laughs> hotbed of holiness as the historians tell us but anyway the just are always holy ones whether they're on earth in purgatory or in heaven the just ones uh and because holiness is god residing in us and if you are just if you are not in the state of mortal sin you are holy uh so i guess after the break we'll actually get to the question of uh, purgatory how you get there how do you stay out of it and what time is like there
1: 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: Our good friends in Louisville will need to hear from you next week. Our good friends at Holy Family Radio, WLCR Radio, is airing their 2023 Radiothon next Thursday and Friday. So if you're listening in Kentucky or anywhere, please make it a point to support the good work of your EWTN Catholic Radio station. We're talking with Anne about what it takes to get out of purgatory, Colin.
2: Okay. Well, I think earlier on in her question, she well, you know wondered you know how how we get there and what kind of you know is, is it time what is going on there. Um, ever, any when we go into it, well, let's let's look at it this way. I'll back up a little bit. We know that in baptism, all our personal sins as well as original sin is forgiven not much of a problem for a little infant but an adult coming into the church it might be a very happy occasion if they have a load of sins they don't have to confess them they're taken away in the sacrament of of baptism that's what baptism does the sacrament of penance was known in the early church as the second baptism the baptism after the first baptism when through our neglect our willfulness we sin against God in such a way that we've broken that bond of charity, that bond of union with him. And we can come back. Now, in sin, there are two elements to the penalty of sin, why sin is punished. One element is that it's an offensive of God. If he says these ten things, don't do one through ten, as he has, and you do one of those one through ten, at least in the essential element of that, of each of those, um, you know, to kill to steal to bear false witness and so on you do those things then you've broken you've disobeyed god and that's an offense against him that's an act of injustice against him but they also always involve, because we're human beings and we live in a society, they involve our neighbor, they involve our spouses, our family, our friends, our colleagues, or whatever, people we meet in the street, and whomever. We can sin against them as well. And the offense may be a lesser sin. We call that venial sin. Or it may be a serious sin, uh, depending on what we do. And so not only is there eternal penalty But there is also a temporal punishment because there's the order of justice. Christ speaks of this in the Sermon on the Mount. Settle with your brother on the way to the court, lest the judge sentence you to prison and you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So we settle with God in the confessional where the priest, through the power of the sacrament given on Easter Sunday night, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven, whose sins you shall retain, they are retained, restores the bond with God. And if we are truly repentant, the Church teaches, all the temporal punishment is removed also. But sometimes our, sor- our motives for sorrow are not exactly, you know, they may be genuine, but there's a lot of self-interest tied up in that. Maybe there's an attachment to the thing that we did. Yeah, we're sorry we did it, but, gee, that was fun. Or, oh, if I only didn't have to be good, I could do it again, that kind of thing. And that attachment is what this penalty of purgatory removes, purifies us of. Purifies us, as Scripture says, like the sons of Levi in, 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 or in St. James, as if through fire. And so sometimes we'll go to confession. If we come out pure and we're hit by a car, it's just like we were baptized and we're hit by a car right to heaven. And we may go to confession like that routinely all the time with full and complete contrition for the offense against God, the injury to neighbor, the willingness to make reparation to the neighbor where where reparation should be made, as Jesus said we should do in, in the Sermon on the Mount. But maybe sometimes... We're restored to our friendship with God, but eh, we're not quite so, you know, able to or desirous of of doing the other things. When we die in that condition, then it must be purified. Now, the church in this life gives, of course, we do the sacraments. We have, when we pray, we have the opportunity to turn our mind to God, you know, to right our ship, if you will, in my Navy nautical uh, terminology, We have that opportunity and all those things can have effect as well, coming out of the sacrament of penance and in view of having received the absolution or in view of the next confession we go to. Uh, But sometimes at the end of it, at the end of life, there is a load of temporal punishment that is due, or even just a little bit, both the little and the load must be purified of us because we're told in scripture regarding the heavenly jerusalem nothing impure shall enter in in the sermon on the mount jesus said be perfect as the heavenly father is perfect he didn't say be perfect but bring your human tarnishes into the kingdom with you no be perfect so we will be made perfect if we're not perfect when we die and i think that's an important way to understand it we have a lot of opportunity in this life and all of the saints who have addressed this question say, it is much easier to repair the temp- and get rid of the temporal punishment due to our sins in this life than it is in purgatory. And so I think we need to think about that. The other element is there is no direct relationship between the number of sins we commit. You had a million very slight insignificant sins but you had a temporal punishment from two really big ones that you've never really made much of an effort to repair you you know you you wanted to but you didn't or you didn't quite have the will for so there's no comparison there but god knows who understands our conscience he knows the order of justice that has to be restored in us so that everything is properly ordered in us, our human faculties, as they're called—intellect, will, memory, imagination, our senses—are all properly ordered, and that means ordered to Him. That's the objective. And if we don't do it in this life using the means the Church gives us, we will we will do it in the next in purgatory. Eight
1: three three two eight eight EWTN. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. I'm so happy. Lucia called back. Lucia is in Chicago listening on WSFI (laughs) radio. Lucia, you're on with Colin Donovan.
3: Hi. My question was, my children want to watch scary movies or go to hunt houses or things like that. And I don't want them to, but I want to know if it's a sin, if it's not a sin, if there's a way of explaining it to where I have a reason.
2: Yeah. Oh, you know you give the age, I won't mention it here. Uh, ki- kids are like that, but some kids like the scary stuff and others don't. I'm not sure. I've, I've not seen those movies myself, not because my parents, well, I was probably an adult when most of those came out anyway, but not because I had no interest in them. Um, I think the, the trouble with so many movies today, even those who may have a good moral message uh, about good and evil, You know even something which I think is a wonderful series like you know the Lord of the Rings trilogy or or other things that uh, that are trying to express the battle, really the battle history the battle of history and the battle we're in between good and evil and good is seen to come out on the top but we get you know scripture tells us not even to look sometimes look upon violence because we get we get used to it we get used to brutality We get used to the ways of the world. And even if there's no, you know, synod in the sense that I embrace it and I think that's a good thing, then there's a a lessening, a breaking down, I think, of the inhibition to the evilness of violence in the world. So I would discourage a a parent of a 13-year-old or 14 or 15 or whatever uh, they're under your house. You can tell them what they can watch, what they can't. Uh, I think there are many good movies out there. My daughter's all into history. She's around that age uh, watching historical movies, which can also have a good deal of violence. You can't watch a movie about World War II or or even if it's factually correct. And, and so we saw, saw the one recently on... Um, Uh, Tom Cruise did about the assassination attempt on Hitler and that failed and uh, Valkyrie Uh, and you know it's it's a very moving movie but I think there's an element of how mature is the child even with those kinds of flicks so you have to use your judgment Um, scary movies can just be scary and kids like the thrill of that it depends I think not just on that fact but the content of it itself so There are a couple sites online which try to, you know, preview and rate movies like that. You could probably do a search for uh, movie ratings for parents or something like that uh, to get an idea on a particular movie. What's in that movie? What's objectionable? And do I think that this is acceptable uh, in any circumstance or maybe for, you know, this particular child who's old enough or mature enough or whatever?
1: God bless you, Lucy. Thank you so much for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Bill is in Louisiana. This afternoon, I'm heading for Kenner, Louisiana. Oh, my goodness. And uh, he's listening on Catholic Community Radio. Bill, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi,
3: Colin. Good good afternoon. Um, my question is about the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Eucharistic prayer. When the priest pulls up the Eucharist, and starts the Eucharistic prayer, because Jesus takes the bread, breaks it, and gives it to his disciples. Why doesn't the host, why isn't the host broken at that time?
2: Well, it's the institution narrative, which means it's the account of the, uh, the Eucharist. It's not, you know, a literalist account. It's just telling us here that Christ established this saying, do this in remembrance of me. So the practical side of that is usually to consume the host, and if there are maybe one concelebrant or that, the priest will end up breaking the host in order to, uh, for Holy, Holy Communion, his own Holy Communion, or to distribute a half to a concelebrant. So that would be the occasion there. It's purely a practical thing, uh the purpose of showing that the bread and the wine were consecrated by christ and became his body and blood at the last supper and this is what the church is doing in remembrance of that in a a very real sense that like the passover meal in which the jew jewish people did and still understand that as them going through what their ancestors went through. There's a realization of that event taking place there is actually realized through the representation of Calvary in the Mass. And so the words to show that connection are there. It's not a acting out of it. Otherwise, many other elements of the Mass would be different. It were simply to recreate the scene of the Last Supper. That's not his purpose, but to make the connection between uh, between what is taking place there and what took place there. And you can think of the practicality of that also, and that is at the Last Supper, there were the apostles, and there was our Lord, and probably the women, including his mother, most speak of this, and that would have been necessary simply for the distribution. And since they were priests, they, he was ordaining them priests on that same night, it was distributed and it, in their own hands it became his body and blood by his words. So there's a difference between what literally happened historically and the theological and sacramental significance of what is done in the Mass. And so they don't have to be equivalent in those kinds of details.
1: 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. Still time for your calls and a couple of open phone lines at 833-288-3986. Herman is in Louisville, Kentucky, listening on Holy Family Radio. Herman, you're on with Colin Donovan.
3: Yes, hi, gentlemen. I Hello, love Herman. your show. Oh, well, very anyway, good. Anyway, my question, my question, in, in a short. Uh, anyway, I'm a talker, so just <laughs> tell me to hang. Well, you're talking me to me talkers. do <laughs> <to> what? <laughs> you're talking to talkers. <laughs> really? Well, I could go on for hours and hours, okay. but I'm going to make it short.
2: Very good. That's I great. just want to know.
3: I mean. You know, down here on Earth, we hear a whole lot of things. Some of it is opinion. Some of it is, you know. Anyway, my question is, when you die, I've been told that your body goes in the ground, it starts disintegrating, and your soul goes up to heaven. My question is, where does the soul go? I mean, is it the first judgment, or is it... I mean
2: where does it go sure yeah um in sacred scripture in the letter to the hebrews it said is appointed to man to die once after which the judgment so connecting all the facts to the the teaching of the church coming out of the fathers is this understanding and the fathers being uh those men who were the descendants of the original apostles the apostles appointed bishops, we see this in uh, Timothy and Titus, the, those letters that Paul had made them bishops, and so the apostles are no more in the sense the witnesses to Christ historically, but in the sense of the authority of those witnesses passed on, that's the bishops. So, we know from the Church's understanding that what is being spoken of here is is called the private judgment, that each of us at the moment of our death, we'll stand before Christ. And I like, like so many things, I like the Sermon on the Mount, which is a way the, you know, the central feature of the Gospels, really, in in this respect. Because in that verse I cited earlier with respect to purgatory, and that is to make peace with your brother on the way to the judge. Unless you do that, The judge will throw you into prison. Christ was not talking about the judicial system any more than he talks about politics or economics when he uses those as examples. He is the judge, and this is the constant teaching of the church, that Christ is our judge. He came to redeem us, but he will also be our judge when we die, as he will be the judge of all of mankind at the end. So, at the end will be the general judgment. In other words, it is those who are alive at the end will have their private judgment, and it will all be gathered up in the general judgment by which we see how God worked out history in all these many ways, and we see the glory of God expressed in his mercy to sinners, but also in his justice to the reprobates, to the unrepentant. So, that's the general judgment. But each of us must go at the hour of our death. We will go uh, before Christ, and he will judge, judge us. And his, our fate in that moment will be, if we are just without blemish, in other words, perfect as the Father is perfect, we immediately will go into eternal life in heaven. If we are evil, well, there's another place. But likely the overwhelming majority of mankind, mankind are in the middle. They are just, in other words, that they're friends of God, but maybe they're not perfect. And so the, what I was speaking of earlier with, with uh, purgatory, to purify and make us perfect, because nothing unpure will enter in, as John tells us in the book of Revelation, towards the end. That'll be done in purgatory. And then we will enter into heaven. And that is all on an individual, you know, each of us will have some degree of purification, some little, some greater. And that will determine when they go into the presence of the Father. So that is what's going to happen to our soul. There are those three destinies which gets boiled down to two, heaven or hell. Uh, But the destiny of purgatory will be resolved by our purification or by the end of the world and then there will only be two dead places heaven with god for eternity or the place prepared for the devil and all his angels by god those will be the two remaining places so that hour of death is very important and that's why the devil very often uses it to attack people and to get them discouraged and to get to despair about their sin But everybody should realize the great mercy of God and his willingness to accept anybody back if they only turn to him and ask for his mercy. He will give it to them. But people lose themselves in themselves and they don't do that. So uh, I guess that's meant to be an inducement for everyone never to lose hope, never to lose confidence in God's mercy and to trust in him, even if we got to be polished up a little bit uh, after our personal judgment.
1: Be sure to check out Women Made New with uh, Kristalina Everett this Saturday at noon Eastern. Uh, the guest today is Kathleen Beckman. Uh, she's going to chat about her new book, Beautiful Holiness Learning. From Blessed Conchita, Uh, Kathleen is a terrific sister in Christ, and be sure to check that out. Women Made New, Saturday noon Eastern time on EWTN Radio. Next up is Joe, a first-time caller in Minot, North Dakota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Joe, you're on with Colin Donovan.
3: Well, good afternoon, gentlemen. I have a sort of a, I hope, easy question. Uh, It has to do with the uh, Gospel reading from Mm -hmm. today. Yeah. And and I was doing fine until we got <laughs> down to the end of it there, and they talked about, you know, uh, you haven't, they get rid of, uh, why don't you just clarify it for
2: me? Yeah, sure. Well, there he's Jesus being challenged because everybody knows he's going around delivering people from demons. I mean, it's not exactly uh, uh, secret knowledge in uh, in the day.
1: Front page of the Jerusalem Times.
2: Exactly, you know, and, you know, the the Samaritan news probably as well. You know, so they knew that he could do this. The trouble is when you're hardened against the possibility that the Messiah might be standing before you, you're looking for reasons why you don't want to do it and so accept and so they accused him of being in league with Beelzebub, in other words one of the names that is given to to Satan uh, and so the accusation is obviously that well of course they come out and because they go into him so that he could throw them out because it's really you're in league with the devil But that's not likely to be true. And he throws that back at them. Well, if I'm in, what about your own exorcist? Judaism had a practice of exorcism as well. In the ancient world, there was great respect for the, uh, the, the fact that evil could possess a person. And so there are many, in many human societies. And they each had their own remedies, and they wouldn't be remedies we would say would be either Jewish or Christian. But that doesn't mean that God could not have respected their, you know, His His mercy extended beyond uh, the bounds of Israel. Uh, he prepared His way through the prophets of of, of many lands, um, in which, the, in the fathers' sight, the the the, the sibyls and others, uh, the magi pagans who. Uh, who came to, they may have been pagans with uh, a little affection for Jerusalem and Israel and the the Hebrew scriptures, but nonetheless, they wouldn't have fallen within the strict boundaries of a group of people that the Lord would be listening to, but yet he blessed them. And so the practice of exorcism was there, and we know that only God can do it, and that was the challenge he was making to them. This is one of the reasons why the church says today, that the solemn exorcism is reserved to the priest because when he does that he's given the command by his bishop who was given his office obviously by the Pope who's the successor of St. Peter who received his from Christ. You have Christ's own authority involved in that exorcism. The lay person going in there and making demands of the evil ones On their own authority even if they call on the blood of Jesus or or whatever um, he has no obligation to hear that and to respect that and so uh, it becomes a very dangerous thing so the church has a very tight standard for when exorcisms are performed that demonstrated not to be mental illness demonstrated to not to be uh, psychologically or psychiatrically resolvable demonstrated to maybe have those some of those symptoms but accompanied by phenomena that demonstrate a non human power or presence that is able to do things such as speak in other languages that are unknown or exercise physical strength that is not normal to any human being. These demonstrations of that presence of actual evil then the church will act with her authority, which is Christ's authority. Uh, and so this, was the, this is what the, the, the leaders of his day were, were proposing to Jesus, is he didn't have that authority. But then they dec- didn't recognize who he really was in any case.
1: On behalf of our host, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again on Monday with Father John Tregilio. Until we get together then, have a great weekend, and God bless.